Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you Um, know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Kai. Did you uh, take any uh, note of the Grammys this week? Not really. I, I mean, it just seems, I mean, to be honest, not that I ever did. Uh, why did you? Come on, you've obviously got something. You're no, I just looked. I just looked at them. I thought Aussie, you know, getting uh, getting a Grammy for you know best rock metal album or whatever it was was uh, I, with and that and yeah. you know best you know performance metal performance. I mean, that, only that Jeff Beck is on that album. It's possibly one of the last things that Jeff ever uh, recorded. Yeah, so that's good. But I, also, I think the Daily Mail gets an award for most ignorant, ill-informed headline ever with unknown blues singer wins a Grammy for Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> Don't they get that award every week, though? <laughs> yeah. Every paragraph. And, um, and I thought, Harry Styles, I mean, you know, I felt sorry for him. That, that Did you hear about the turntable? No. Oh, they had a big dancer's turntable. And they've been rehearsing for weeks to do... The, the turntable is going round and the dancers are on it going one way and then they stop and they fall off and they get back on. And as they came on for the live TV show, the tech decided to turn it the other way. Uh, so, well, they, they probably changed the phase of the electricity. So, so, so the only time I've ever heard of a turntable going the wrong way was when Jimmy Page announced the devil or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I buried Paul. <laughs> but um, also, well, he got into hot water for something he said, didn't he, about people like me don't win. But um, uh-huh. anyway, we'll steer away from controversial waters. So today's guest, Tony King... Right, mm-hmm. led man who was always in the room. I was thinking, Gary, because he's rather than a musician or a producer, he was more involved in dealing with the artists. Uh, for your Bill Frindle stuff today, you see your stats are quite tricky. Yeah. For with, I think it would be more. He witnessed seven hundred tantrums, forty meltdowns, <laughs> thirty-five trips to rehab, <laughs> at a pigeon crossing St John's Wood High Street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, Tony is someone I've I've known for quite a long time actually. Um and he's just got a book out. Um 
The Tastemaker. It's a great book. It's a fabulous a read. A great book, The Tastemaker, uh, about his life in this business. And uh, of course, he goes back a long time. And, you know, he goes back to, he, he worked with um, um, Andrew Lou Goldham. Andrew, well, yeah, I mean, he, he literally just ran the gamut of everything. Andrew Lou Goldham, then to the Beatles, then back... Oh, no, hang on, was it the Beatles? Yeah, the Beatles yeah, yeah well, he worked with George Martin, then, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And then George, yeah. It's, uh, um, uh, he was at Decca Records, he was at Apple, he was the A&R man at Apple, he... He uh, he then worked with the Stones for twenty years. He he's he worked with uh, Elton. With Elton, Elton was the, yeah. I mean, and uh, and it's just it, it's so many stories. <laughs> I mean, I don't yeah. know whether we're going to get through them all. Um, he, I doubt it. He's he's a wonderful man, and I know he's he's uh, he's um, he's a very smart man too. And I feel slightly that I've not worn the right thing. You know, he's uh, oh, you should have said yeah, yeah. He might be critical of what you're wearing, guy. I don't know. You look actually what you're wearing. You look like uh, you look like Zelensky. Zelensky. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you're about to give your nightly speech on Ukraine. Well, isn't this the guy I meant to ask for fighter jets? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can ask him for a front page of a music mag. Let's exactly. get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a bite. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! King Tony. Yay! Oh, he's there, he's gone. They oh. sink in there. Yay! I lost, the, I lost the bloody connection. I was trying to find it, so I had to email Dan and to say, send it to me quick. I love your, the what I can see behind you, Tony. You've got that fantastic picture of you and John dressed up as Victorians. In fact, yes, this one, you mean? Yeah. Oh, that one. Oh, that's that's oh, wonderful. Fantastic. You and John Lennon dressed as as as, as American sort of Victorians, yeah. I guess. Because you used to get those done at Universal Studios, didn't you? And then afterwards, wait a minute, you're going to you've started me off now. You're going to have to wait for me. Also, <laughs> on here is a collage that John and Yoko made for my birthday. Oh, oh wow. wow! It's like all cutouts. Oh, ha good Happy Lord. birthday, your Royal High Jinx. Yeah. Is that what is that? Oh, very good. Because <laughs> Tony, I found on YouTube your uh, Mind Games TV spot. Yes, it's all over. It's been all over YouTube for quite a long time. <laughs> Fantastic. But I'm amazed they didn't do anything about editing the sound because John is so loud laughing just in this the background. Guy, just describe what it is. No, I'm not. I'm going to let our listeners figure it out. It was. Uh, it's from a... <laughs> Was it one night of hijinks in LA? You were impersonating the Queen and doing an and doing an advert for mine. I was indeed. And your friend recorded it. Sorry, your tell us, Tony. Tell, tell us, Tony. It's your story, mate. Do you want to know the story? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it goes in sequence. I was staying with Mike Hazelwood, who wrote "It Never Rains in Southern California" in the air that I breathe. And um, we were getting stoned one night, smoking a couple of joints, and we, I decided to 
do a sort of mind games commercial in the Queen's voice. And we recorded it. We taped it and we were laughing. We were just messing about, to be honest with you. So I said to Mike, we're going to see John tomorrow. I said, let's let's play it to him in the car. So we did. And he roared with laughter. He thought it was hysterical. Then he calls me up at Capitol Records, where I was working out of, the next day. And he says, would you please do the uh, commercial for Mind Games, um, Dress as the Queen? <laughs> With your with your little message that you, with your little impersonation that you did, so I said, "Well, yeah, okay," uh, up for a laugh, and um, I had to go down to Western Costume on Halloween of all nights, and there was this really t- there was this tough broad, you know, like American broad, in charge there, and she she goes, "Okay, so which one of you is the queen?" <laughs> so I had to put my hand. <laughs> It's me. It's not the first time you've done that, Tony. <laughs> and then they they had to fit me in a dress, and I was very fussy about the dress. They kept bringing out dresses, and I kept saying, "No, no, 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 no." Her Majesty wouldn't be seen dead in that. No, 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 no. Quite right. And in the end, I got an acceptable dress. And then, of course, we had to do the commercial in um, in Hollywood in a big studio, and uh, Elton was in town touring we were by this time Elton was bigger than a slice spread and uh he was in, t- in town touring and he calls me up what are you doing today you know just checking in oh I'm doing a commercial dress as the queen you're what I said I'm doing a commercial dress as the queen for John Lennon I said we're doing it this afternoon do you want to come so he goes I said John I'll be there would you want to meet him and he goes yeah okay <laughs> so Elton rolls up in the afternoon and there's John and May and Jimmy Iovine and Roy Sakala, quite an interesting cast. And uh, Elton comes in, and I'm in a crown and full makeup, but jeans and t shirt. I hadn't got the dress on, so I'm like half. Much like the Queen herself. You know, strolling <laughs> yes. around the palace grounds in your, <laughs> yeah. in your, in your jeans and your crown, <laughs> as you do when you're the Queen. Anyway, so I have to introduce them. I say, John, this is Elton, Elton, this is John, and I'm in a crown and makeup and all that. And that's when they first met that day. But that's quite funny. So if anyone ever asked John or Elton, so where did you first meet? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Well, that's that's a story what Elton would say, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But if it wasn't for you, you then, in that moment, you know, they, they wouldn't have made whatever gets you through the night or, you know, he wouldn't have got on stage at Madison Square Gardens. You, you brought Correct. them together. You know, and then, well, but not at that moment because that was 1973. But 1974, when John had asked me in 1973 if I would come and work for him in America the following year. And after a lot of shenanigans with the Beatles to get everybody to sign me off to Capitol in America, they agreed. And Elton said, oh, I'm going to New York on the SS France. You want to come with? So I said, yeah. So I sailed to the New York on the SS France with Elton, who had a music room every day for two hours. And he wrote Captain Fantastic all the way across the Atlantic. But he didn't have a tape machine, so he had to keep all the songs in his head. When we got to New York, he had an album in his head. (laughs) Were you ever there when he wrote? I was there when he wrote We All Fall In Love Sometimes. That was in Weybridge. It is um, Wentworth or Wentworth, I think it was. at, At his little house he had down there. And I went to stay one weekend and he started noodling at the piano. 
and singing and I went down to the bedroom to fiddle about fussing and everything and then when I came back to the living room he said I finished the song do you want to hear it so I said yeah okay so he plays me we all fall in love sometimes wow. I've got a photo of me actually lying on the sofa listening to it uh, it's somewhere buried in my photo uh, library but on the boats, when he did all the Captain Fantastic stuff on the boat, I never heard any of it. He just said, I'd come back at lunchtime and I'd say, how'd you do? And he said, I wrote another one. Did he have a stack of lyrics that Bernie had given him to take yeah, with him? Yeah, Bernie used to send yeah, yeah. like a little water. Telegrams coming in. <laughs> and he'd just pick out ones that he fancied doing. Sometimes he'd pick out one and it wouldn't work and he'd chuck it, you know, because he couldn't find a tune for it. So boats wouldn't pull up alongside with semaphore saying this with a, with a new Bernie lyric. <laughs> <laughs> we did have We used to read I, the Atlantic. The, the, this paper called L'Atlantique that they published every day with all the news. And Elton and I used to treat like the charts. And we used to say, oh, Cyprus is doing well today. It went up to number three. And <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I know on the boat you had uh, Julian Lennon, the young Julian Lennon. That's right, you there. were taking Julian he, over, weren't he, you? Yeah. He told me, because I read that in the book, and he told me that he has very vivid memories of that trip, how extraordinary Yeah, Julian came with Cynthia, his mum. Anyway, we get to New York, and we are staying at the Pierre Hotel, and John is at the Pierre Hotel with May, because by this time he was uh, broken up with Yoko for a couple of years. And he's in, he's upstairs, and I said, I called him up, and he said, oh, you're here then? This is my first day living in, a, in America, work in America. I said, yeah, I'm with Elton downstairs. He said, you want to come up, both of you? So we went up to see him. And he said, I've just finished my album. Do you want to hear it? So, yeah, of course we're going to hear it. So he plays it to us. And then at the end of it, he says to Elton, do you want to sing on any, anything on this? Is there anything you hear that you think you could contribute to? So Elton and I both looked at each other. We both knew straight away. We both said, well, whatever gets you through the night is the one because we thought that was a really commercial tune too. So he said, oh, all right, come down the studio. So a couple of nights later, after we'd been out for dinner with the head of MCA, Mike Maitland, I remember, and Lou Cook, the VP of MCA, we went down to the studio. Record, record plant? Well, that, yeah. And, and we did, um, and with, with Jimmy Iovine, twiddling yes. all the knobs, we did whatever gets you through the night and surprise, surprise, he added to, some vocals to one of the other tracks. So we did whatever gets you through the night and it turned out well. The only thing that Elton said was he, he had a, a great trouble singing along with John's phrasing. He said he's right. got a very unusual way of phrasing and it was, you know, he had to kind of study to... to to be in sync with him, you know, because the phrasing was different. But it, it got done. And um, so I went back to L.A. with the to talk to Capital about John's album, because Capital were looking after Apple Records. And uh, so it was decided that that was going to be the single in the end, after a bit of a debate. And then everybody realised that Elton was so big at that time that, it would make sense to put it out. So we did. And then at some point during the course of that, Elton was on tour. He calls me up and he goes, I've got an ask for you. So I said, what is it? He said, do you think John would do Madison Square Garden with me on, on Thanksgiving? 
And I said, that's a pretty big ask, Elton. So I said, but I will ask. Because <laughs> you, at that point, were looking after John. not Yeah, I was working for Apple like, Records, looking, after, looking after John, looking yeah. after Ringo. Mostly Ringo and John I worked for. And George sometimes, George really would, was with Dark Horse Records, so, and he'd gone off in another direction. I'd, I used to see George, we were fine, but the basic, most of the work was based around Ringo and John, which was enough, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah two, two Beatles. Two, two, two Beatles is enough, yeah. you know. Don't get greedy. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, this record came out, and uh, I, I said to John, Elton wants to know if you do Madison Square Garden. And John said, yeah, if the record gets to number one, he said, rather sarcastically thinking it's never going to get to number one because he hadn't had a number one in a while. So I told Capitol Records, Al Corey, the head of promotion, I said, can you try and put an extra bit of effort into the John Lennon single? Because if it gets to number one, he's, he said he'll do Madison Square Garden. So it did. It got to number one for one week. So I John hadn't played for eight on huh? stage for how long? I mean, John hadn't been on stage for a no, long time. No, he hadn't been on stage for... I think he'd done some charity concert in Toronto for something, you know, with Yoko, and it wasn't... But it wasn't... It was kind of very loose and very casual. I think he might have done something with Elephant's Memory or one of those bands that he was fooling around with at the time. But he hadn't done anything serious, you know, like where you come out as John Lennon, you know, like, boom. Yeah, yeah. And um, which was Madison Square Garden, of course. So uh, I said, your record's number one, John. And he goes, does that mean I've got to do Madison Square Garden? I said, well, you actually did say you would. So he goes, okay, then I'll do it. So I tell Elton. Elton says he's got to come to Boston to see the show because otherwise he won't know what he's getting himself in for. So I take John up to Boston. We go in the Starship with Elton. Jet, you know, private, mm -hmm. nice. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, grub. <laughs> and uh, we we watched the show. John's bowled over. He couldn't believe the sound. He said, oh, my God. He said, the sound, the sound. He said, when we played Shea Stadium, we couldn't hear a thing. He said, well, they're these little amps that were up. And, it was, and it, it was just the tannoy. It was just the thing that tells you yeah. to move your car is what they were... Go yeah, on. but you couldn't you couldn't hear anything. No, they, John not. said well, we could have been singing anything and they wouldn't have known. He says, in fact, some of the songs we were just fooling around, not singing them properly because all we could hear was screams, you know. Anyway, so he was blown away by the sound. And on the way back, Elton said to John, "Well, you better we better rehearse." So we went down to record record factory, something hit factory, whatever, somewhere. We, I forget where it was when we rehearsed. I could probably look it up. But um, anyway, we did the rehearsal and we did Whatever Gets You Through and then we did Lucy in the Sky. And we were just packing up and Elton said to John, do you want to do another song? He said, do you want to do one of your own? Do you want to do Imagine? John said, no, I don't want to do Imagine. Why don't we do I Saw Her Standing There? We'll do one of Paul's songs. Yeah. So Elton said, okay, and then we routine whatever uh, I saw her standing there, which I played the other day. I played the live version to myself to listen to it. Bloody fantastic. That was amazing. Oh, my yeah. God, they were on fire. Amazing. And so lovely yeah. that it's one of Paul's. But I remember, because John, John was so rusty, I remember Davy Johnson 
said, you know, Elton's guitar. I said at the time that like he had to help John get a guitar sound and everything. He was he'd completely forgotten sort of everything. Yeah, Davey was <laughs> yeah. a great help. Yeah, and John was, you know, he. I mean, he was like <laughs> slightly like a lamb to slaughter because he was without a support. It was just us and the the band, but he he knew that he had a, a group of great musicians with him. And and Elton, of course, being very, very much in charge, you know, behind that piano, he was very much in charge. And um, so the rehearsals went well. Show night, John was up chucking a little bit, nervous. And uh, uh, Yoko sent some gardenias and John said, oh, I'm glad. That's nice. That's from Yoko. I, I couldn't play if she was here. Well, I knew she was there because I got her tickets. You must have been nervous about that. You did bringing her into the auditorium because they'd they'd separated at that point. Yeah, but Yoko and I were had become friends because John had insisted when I worked for him that I become friends with Yoko. He wanted me to become friends with Yoko because he described her as a great lady. He said, she's a great lady. I want you to meet her and I want you to go and spend time with her, which I did. And I got on great with her. We had a really, she was much different to what I expected. You know, I was expecting this imperious, tough woman. And instead she was this like slightly fragile bird, you know? There's a funny story, isn't there? In your book where you, when you're staying at the house and you do some washing up. Well, I was actually oh, yeah. staying, I was staying next door at Peter Brown's who used to, and yeah, I used to go there as my office, and I, I, I was walking down the corridor, and there was this glass on a pillar, and I thought, oh, someone's left that there. I'll wash it up. So I took it into the kitchen, and I was washing it up. And John Yoko came in with John. John was like behind Yoko, laughing. He goes, uh, Tony, where you know that glass on the pillar? Where is it?" So I said, "Oh, I'm just washing it up." She goes, actually, it's my artwork. I said, I'm off properly sorry. It's just won the Turner Prize. <laughs> so we, yeah, so we just stuck it back on the pillar. It was fine. And the job but there's also, yeah, also no the one, one of art directing the fridge. Yes. Well, that was... She said one day I came in, because by this time, Yoko, when I was working for them, Yoko had got pregnant with Sean. Oh, which by sorry to sorry to go back, but just to, to follow, didn't that happen the night of Madison Square Gardens? Well, I think it, Sean has said it didn't actually happen then. But the 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 fire was lit then, right? Relit, but it didn't take place for another couple of months. But when they saw each other backstage, because as I said earlier, he didn't know she was there, and then she came back and she he said, "Oh, you were here." And she said, yeah. And so they sat and there's a wonderful photo of him looking at her and you you can only see the back of his head and you can see this look on her face and you you can see it in the photo. You, you think, yeah, definitely they was, they, there was some spark that was lit. And, and by the way, I didn't back to the finish the show, but it was a fantastic show. Incredible. The five-minute ovation, the whole thing. It was yeah. totally brilliant. Hopping to the refrigerator now. Yes, sorry. Yeah. That's all right. I'm quite happy to jump around so long as you oh, think you can make a program out of it and stick it together. I'm happy. <laughs> Just send me good. off. I, I go off piste anyway quite frequently, so Great. get used to it. Um, Guy's gone off pissed quite a few times, but no more. <laughs> well, no, right, no, we no, know no, that, no. darling. Not for, a long, not for a long time. By the way, you're looking good, good, Gary. 
Oh, thank you, Tony. So are you. Oh, thank you for lying. <laughs> no, I'm, and I'm so in love with the book. I think the book is and absolutely Guy and I both yeah. love the book. Do you devoured like it? it? Yeah, devoured it. We, devoured it, mate. We, we really do. And because I, I think you just touch on so many different things. I mean, we'll talk about it in a minute. But okay. I mean, also going into, you know, the awful beginning of the AIDS epidemic in New York. Yeah. The way you paint that yeah. is extraordinary. But I, I'm going to remain on the fridge. Also, just want to say the greatest PR in the world chooses our podcast. We must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, well, I know you very well and I, I don't know your other young man, but I see him a lot on Facebook in various guises. You don't you play with different people? I play with yeah, yeah, anyone. I'm a yeah, I'm a type. Yeah, but I'm often seeing you playing with this one, that one, and the other one, isn't it? Well, there's a fair few. Well, I play with Gary now. We're in a band together. But don't you play with Roxy sometimes? I play. I used to play Roxy music. I've worked with Brian on and off for about forty years, and then David Gilmore, and I used to work with Pink Floyd. Yes, exactly. I worked with Madonna you see, and all you sorts. see Roger Waters today. No, I can't say I noticed. It's on the cover of Daily, <laughs> cover of Daily Mail. No, really? No, right. I don't know. No, I missed yeah. all that. No, no. I don't know how much we're allowed to talk about it. Country. <laughs> yeah, uh, don't, uh, don't start. I, this is all—it's all, it's all very involved for me because uh, because my son is actually Rick Wright from Pink Floyd's grandson. So it's all very close to home. For me. It's, it's too close <laughs> to it's home. Close to home. Yeah, let's go back to, the play, we, back to the fridge. We play, we play with each other with Nick Mason. Yeah. We're in Nick Mason, both in Nick Mason's solo project, which we've been doing since 2018. Right, okay. We're never going to get to the fridge. It's never going to happen, we, is it? Now? We are going to get to yeah, the fridge. On. I'm determined. <laughs> we, we, uh, <laughs> Yoko's in bed because she's pregnant with Sean and had been told to stay in bed. So John was, um, hadn't, he hadn't switched himself off at that point. He was still around. You know, he hadn't become the house husband that he did eventually once Sean was born. But before Sean was born, he, he, Yoko was in bed and we, we, she, uh, all the food was ordered in, everything. She had a wheelchair next to the bed with, down, so she could go down to the kitchen and someone would push it down to the kitchen. And she one, says one day, I've got a refrigerator arriving. Can you, um, would you mind making sure that they get it to the kitchen without damaging anything? like the bandaged armchair or the glass on the pillar or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, the, you know, so anyway, the these guys from New Jersey arrive with this. You know, when you go to a supermarket, <clears throat> you've got the fridges with the doors. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. You reach in to get your milk and stuff. Well, it was like that. It was one of those. So I got it installed in the kitchen. It looked great. So I went back to Yoko and I said, the kit, the fridge is installed, Yoko. She said, ah, oh, can I have a look? So I said, yeah, into the wheelchair, down to the kitchen. Okay, now we arrange it. So then I had to put, do you want the tomatoes here? Do you want the milk here? Do you want this here? Do you want the... I art, she art directed the refrigerator and I had to put all the different things in different until we've completed it. And it, I must say, it did look fabulous. And then John came home. Sorry, He'd been sorry. out somewhere. He came home and he, he went to go to the refrigerator and Yoko says, don't go there. I said, we've been art directing all the afternoon, John. You can't go to the refrigerator just yet. <laughs> have, you've got to have a look at it first. And it is... And then many years later, I was 
telling the story at backstage at an Elton show at, at around the Roundhouse, around the corner. And my friend said, I wonder if she still does it. So I sent her an email. I said, you still do your fridge? And she sent me a picture of the fridge back again. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. I've got it on my phone somewhere. But but I do think she's tapped into something there because I think to an extent we all do art director fridge, don't we? I mean, I know I do. I know I think, oh, that jar would look better up there. Well, I I love <laughs> I love arranging my fridge, I must say. And yeah. I, I'm a great... Well, ever since then, of course, I've been very fussy about when I open the door, how it looks. And I love it when there's quite a few bits of stuff in and it looks like it's full and it looks like it's busy. I don't like it when it's empty very much, you know, I must yeah, say. I, I, I've, I've decided if I ever win a Grammy, I'm going to send my fridge to pick up the award. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> um, Tony, so Heartbreak Hotel changed your life as a young man. It did. How, what was it like pre-rock and roll? I mean, did, did the world exist? Well, I was living in the world of Guy Mitchell and Rosemary Clooney and Dean Martin and uh, Perry Como. That was pop music before. So, and I wasn't unhappy with it, but, you know, that's what it was at the time. And I didn't think about anything else until one night I'm in the kitchen having a strip wash after, Years after the war years, that's what we did. You know, the only that's room what was... we did. I never had a bathroom in my house. We had a strip wash always. Yeah, the only ro- the only room that was warm was the one that you were living in. <laughs> we couldn't afford to heat them <laughs> yeah. all. You and then we had baby bellings and stuff. Baby bellings. I'm, I'm yes. having this strip wash, and this noise comes on the radio. This incredible, incredible noise of this guy's vocal and this incredible song. Something like I'd never heard before, and it got right under my skin. I thought, what is that? Who is that? And I ran over to the radio to try and tune it, because Radio Luxembourg had really dodgy tuning. Mm-hmm. You you were lucky if you got a whole song, because it was always fading in and fading out. So I had to make sure that I heard as much as possible. And then they just said, that was America's latest teenage sensation. I was presently singing Heartbreak Hotel. I forget the name of the song. I forget the name of the artist. I go to school the next day. I'm in the bike sheds where we used to talk about Journey into Space and the good <laughs> And, and I, I've smoke. heard this record on the radio last night. It's going to change my life. It's so incredible. And they all looking at me like, yeah, 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 yeah. Shut up. And uh, anyway, I read the, in the Daily Mirror that week. They had a little teeny weeny article saying Elvis Presley, America's teenage sensation, got a gold record for. Heartbreak Hotel, I thought, that's the name of the guy. Because Elvis Presley in 1958, 56, England, Elvis, there was no Elvises. That didn't exist in England, the name Elvis. I'd never met an Elvis in my life, you know. Yeah. It was all David or Tom or Tony or whatever. But if that was there any other, I don't know, are there any other Elvises before Presley that we've ever heard of? If you actually trawl through history, there isn't one. I suppose there must be. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, once I knew who it was, I was off and running. I had to know all about him. In the end, I ended up having half a dozen or maybe 10 78s of Elvis before I had a record player. And I used to, because, I just had them because, as possessions and I used to take them out every Saturday night and clean them and read the label. Oh, that is so That's sweet. gorgeous. Gorgeous. Could you imagine, though, you listen to this record and it changes your life orally. Then 
you see what he actually yeah. looks like, and he looks like a god. And then what a package you have! Because surely you you'd never well, seen those that, clothes. Uh, no, no, you've never seen any clothes like like that before. I mean, the way he dressed was incredible. Well, if you see the very early uh, Tommy Dorsey shows, when before they tamed him down, his movements were just fantastic. I mean, incredible, you know. But it was a it was a little bit like the religious churches when people start responding, you know. That's uh, where I was getting yeah. it from, though, wasn't it? It was. I think black. In the same way as James Brown did the same thing. Of, Inspiration. Yeah. Well, he was a combination of the Grand Old Opry mm -hmm. and Louisiana Hayride and Gospel Church, which was what Sam Phillips was looking for with Sun Records. He was looking for a, a singer who had country and. And, and gospel combined, and that was Elvis. Mm -hmm. Elvis couldn't have come from anywhere else in America. It had to be Tupelo, Mississippi. It couldn't have been Hollywood because he wouldn't have had all those influences in Hollywood. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. You go on and work for Decca. That's Is that your first proper job, as it were? Yeah, it is. I used to have to commute every day from Eastbourne for the first three years because mum and dad wouldn't let me leave home. But so. you were only 15, weren't you? You were 15 when you got the job offer. 15, yeah. Yeah, but you had to turn 16 before the headmaster would let you leave. Yeah, and... He's off to the back of his yeah. room. Here I am. Pull something off the this wall. This is me at 15. Oh, I love that picture. Oh, look at that. Oh, my God. That's hand-painted, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. 
it's in a what I'd call a sort of a drape jacket, a sky blue drape jacket. With a with beautiful leopard, leopard skin. I, I think it's fair to say that this young man has heard of Elvis Presley. I showed my <laughs> wife the pictures of you in the book, Tony. Hey, Laura. Gary, I have to pause here. Drape is yeah. not finger, ah. fingertip drape. Oh, come on. Because when you stood, it had to your fingertips had to come to where the coat the coat had to land where your fingertips were. So oh, the dra- drape sh- was longer than that, was it? No, no, a full drape would have been longer. Yeah. What yeah. Teddy boys wore, Teddy but this drape, is a fingertip yeah. drape. I show my wife the pictures in the book of you, and she was like, "Oh my god, how handsome is he!" Yeah. <laughs> and I write, "Okay, that's enough. Closed it up." <laughs> I closed the book up. I wouldn't let her look at it anymore. She was absolutely just knocked out by your look. And you've always been an incredibly stylish man. And suddenly you're in this rock business, which is also about theatre and glamour. And I think the first act you get to work with properly are the Renettes, aren't they? Or is that as I'm oh, jumping actually, the, gun. the first act was Brenda Lee. Ah, Brenda Lee, coming on strong. Yeah, I had Brenda Lee, <laughs> Speak to Me Pretty was the record that we were promoting. And then she came over and she worked with Sounds Incorporated and she routined them and she was the most incredibly professional and fabulous stage artist. You know, that's where I learned professionalism from. When I saw her working, I thought that's an, that's a whole other league of professionalism. The way she routined a band to get them to play the way she wanted it. She knew exactly what she wanted. And the good people do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like Mick. <laughs> yeah. So the Ronettes... Madonna. This is how you got to meet... You got to meet the Beatles as well, wasn't it? Through, through them and Phil Spector, obviously. Well, I met Be- the Beatles at a broadcast called Pop In with Keith Fordyce, and they were promoting Please Please Me. And we ended up in conversation in the green room, and they... They were great. I, I thought they were really fun. They weren't the Beatles at that point. They were a band from Liverpool trying to, to get yeah. to get a second hit. They had one hit with Love Me Do, which kind of mid-chart record. And then Please Please Me was their first number one. But they were they were incredibly, you know, they you, I just knew straight away, especially when I saw John, I thought, oh, my God, he's so special, that one. And... I knew they were, I just knew they were going to be big. They just had it written all over them, you know. And of course, then we had this wonderful party at Tony Hall's the night before they went off for America. You know, they had no idea what was going to, how it was going to be when they got to America. And at the party was the Ronettes and Phil Spector. And Ronnie was singing along with records and we played Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas. And Ronnie sat singing Heatwave. And John and George were looking at her in blank amazement, you know, a real American voice and coming from a real American girl, you know. And we had this lovely sending off party and they went off to America the next day. And I think two of the Ronettes were on the same flight, but Phil and Ronnie stayed behind. They didn't go because Phil was dating Ronnie at the time. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so that George, they, George was dating one of them as well, wasn't he? George George dated Harrison. Estelle, right? Yeah. Later on, yeah, he went. I went out with George and Estelle one night. We and Ronnie, we had a, a night out, and we didn't get home till nine o'clock in the morning. And we took all the food we could find in the cupboard and cooked it. <laughs> yeah. Where did you go? What's a night out with with George? It was, and, well, you go to the Scottish St James yeah. with Ricky, the lesbian DJ, who was fantastic. <laughs> 
She was brilliant, Ricky. She really... Oh, honestly. Was, was she actually called Ricky the Lesbian DJ? I think not. Well, that's how everybody was yeah. like, oh, no, Ricky the Lesbian DJ. <laughs> and she was fabulous, Ricky. And she also rolled a mean joint. So I'd always go and score off of Ricky. And uh, she had a very hot girlfriend called Sadie. But Ricky used to play great records. So you'd stay at the Scottish St. James until four in the morning. And then there was this other club on... German Street called Dolly's that would stay open late, especially if you were with a Beatle, <laughs> you know. So George and Ronnie and Estelle and I came in, and George was definitely dating Estelle by this time. And uh, we had this, we, we stayed on, and that's where I first heard the song Mockingbird by Charlie and Ines Fox. Ah, they played yes. it, the DJ played it, and I said to George, what is this? And he, he goes, it's Mockingbird. He goes in to the DJ and asks him, and he came back and he signed it and gave it to me. I think I have it. I'm not sure, but anyway, Amazing. he gave me a copy of Mockingbird and we didn't anyway. get back to the flat till seven in the morning, I think, and then we had the famous cookout. <laughs> the Beatles, you're on the you're on the plane with the Beatles. Oh, you weren't personally, but the Beatles were flying to America. No, was... I wasn't. I stayed behind. I was working for Tony Hall. I was promoting records. I, did. I, I, I didn't go to America till 1972. But t Tony, didn't you used to get the Beatles records, Tamla Motown records? Yeah, I used to. Well, I, once I found out what they liked, because we were all like, from that in that generation, you know, people like the Stones, the Animals, Small Faces, me, all the people that were Andrew Oldham, all the people that were around, we all like the same music. We all like American import soul records. Well, although you did, you did say how what was what was interesting when you came across the Stones. I'm sorry to interrupt. Is that um, there's that they were the first people you you come across who were from a kind of it was a different background. It was Black American, but they were from this blues background as opposed to a pop background, which is what you and everyone you knew was more from. Yeah, That's when I first saw the Stones, I, I didn't, I wasn't completely taken in by them, mm. and it wasn't until later on once they made satisfaction. But although I like the last time, I think the last time was the first one that I really liked. Um, but, but then once I became a Stones fan, I became a devotee. You know, I, I love the Stones. I think, you know, we all love the Stones. Before we get on to your work, you working with Andrew Lou Oldham and the Stones. Just there was a moment when you looked after Roy Orbison. That's oh very yes, well. that's, which has the killer story. <laughs> yeah, well, Roy liked German generals' cars. You know the ones that are in with the running boards, the Mercedes yeah, running boards, <laughs> and the two big spotlights. You know the headlights that look like spotlights. So I'm going down. I'm taking Roy and Claudette, his wife, out for dinner, which is part of my job. You know, I have to do all the radio, TV, press, and then dinner. This is Roy's first trip yeah, to the UK. It's like 1960 or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm not 100% sure of the dates because he would come and go. He came and go two or three times, okay. but I think it was the first. Anyway, we're going down the King's Road and this car pulls out of the side road and it's a, one of those cars, you know, the German Mercedes with the running boards and the spotlight. Star car. Roy says to me, I want that car. <laughs> so I go, oh, Okay. Taxi driver, stop the cab, please. I jump out of the cab. I jump in front of the Mercedes, which is not going very fast, thank God. Wave him down. And he says, what, what, what's up? What do you want? You know, mind you, this was the 1960s, so at least it, I wasn't threatening. But um, I said, uh, I've got someone in my taxi who wants to buy your car. Are you interested in selling it? He said, 
well, I could be. Can I meet him? So I said, sure. So I go back to the taxi. I said, Roy, I think we're in business, so you're going to have to come out and do a bit of a sales pitch. So he comes out, Roy Orbison, recognisable, dark glasses, the hair. And the guy, I think the guy knew who he was, and they had a long conversation. End of story, John buys the Mercedes, and, and the guy sells him all the spare parts to it, and it gets shipped to Nashville. And many, many years later, I bump into Barbara Orbison at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Roy, by this time, had sadly passed. And I didn't know Barbara, but I went over to introduce myself because I wanted to just say a polite hello. I said, listen, you don't know who I am. My name's Tony King. She said, you're Tony King? I said, yeah. She said, God, you were a household name with us. She said... Roy used to love telling the story about how you got his Mercedes. Oh, <laughs> really? Wow. And she asked I'd like I do the documentary, uh, uh, do a bit for the documentary that BBC did, and I did that as well. Yeah, but the question- I'd like to think, imagine that just around the corner from that, Andrew Lou Golden was walking along, and the Beatles were getting out of a cab, and yeah. "I Want to Be Your Man" was written. <laughs> you know, yeah, that this was going on in this little one square mile of London. But also, yeah. I think a really pressing question is. Um, was it right-hand drive? Yes, it was. I can remember now. It was. <laughs> yeah. I had to lean what? in and talk to him, I think. Oh, there you go. What I love about uh, you, Tony, is you've been the... the right, right. You've been the man in the that. room so much. Yeah. You've been the guy in the room so much. We'll go on to a couple of other times that you were in the room, but you ended up working with Andrew Lou Golden because he, 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 you were like the only other person to hear this record, right? Yeah. Well, he... We have a talk about, the you know, he wanted me to come because he wanted to set up immediate records and he wanted me to know if I was interested in doing promotion and stuff with him. And he said, I've got a new Stones record we just finished in Hollywood. Do you want me to hear it? So I said, yeah, okay. And then he plays me Satisfaction. I went, oh, my God. It was a heartbreak hotel moment. Not quite as, not quite the same effect, but pretty big. And I, I went, oh, my goodness, Andrew. That is going to be such a huge hit. And it was, of course. And everybody was, funny enough, everybody was talking about it, including John Lennon. was at The Scottish St. James was saying, have, have you heard the Stones record? It's amazing. And we were all, because it didn't come out straight away. It was a few weeks later it came out. But, but it was there was a buzz around London about it. Everyone was saying, oh, you wait till you hear the Stones record. It's amazing. Of course, and then it, it is amazing, and it came out and became an anthem for that period. Yeah, and but you've got to tell us the story of uh, when you first met Keith Richards. <laughs> in bed. <laughs> in my office, but I wasn't in bed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I had an office in Ivor Court, which was just still there, just yeah. above Baker Street. And uh, we had to, in order to make, legally say that we were in an office you had to have a bed in it to to, to say that it's a home there. as well as to stay there and one morning i and the bed was in my office and it was a single bed and one morning i come in to go to work to my desk i open my door and there's keith richard in bed in my office <laughs> so i said to keith looks up at me and slightly bewildered look not having had an awful lot of sleep so i said oh um this is actually my office but 
do you want me to wake you up with a cup of tea later on? And he said, yeah, can you do that? So I said, yeah, sure. So I shut the door and I went and worked out of another office in the meantime. I went to the reception and worked out of the reception, I think, somewhere like that. And then about one o'clock, I took him in a cup of tea and he sat up and we had a beautiful conversation about America because I was so fascinated. I was fascinated by America. And I, of course, I was so exotic. Just, just been to chess studios, and so he was telling me all about it. And he was really very sweet. We had a really lovely conversation. He was very nice, very sweet, very soft, rather kind of almost shy. And we had this lovely conversation. I've never forgotten it. It was a lovely conversation, all about. He told me so much detail. I think they'd seen muddy waters cleaning out the. The studios. He was a sort of a cleaning man in Chester wow. Studios. Wow! Not while they were recording there. That would be well. He'd seen it. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess it was while they were recording. Something oh. about you know, some of the blues artists used to have to take menial jobs to support themselves. You know, because they didn't have money. They weren't. They, they weren't getting royalties. Were not necessarily forthcoming always at that point. <laughs> Did your it. relationship with Keith remain like that always, or did it? Did it no, of course not, because he became Keith Richards. You know, yes, yes, the the yes. Keith Richards that we all know and love. And he, but he, ought, to me, I knew underneath what he was. You know, mm. and he yeah. never really, and he yeah. was always had the underneath all the bravado and the Keith Richard image. He was always a very sweet person. He mm. he would act up in front of me sometimes, and I would I would kind of tease him slightly because he knew that I knew him. And one day somebody said something. One of the one of the somebody in the organisation said something about me that he didn't like, and he stuck up for me and he said, "Look, I've known Tony a long, long time, and the one thing he's not is dishonest." And I was very happy that he stood up for me, you know. You went on to work for George Martin during while he was recording the, the, all the Beatles stuff, and you you were actually in Abbey Road, weren't you, when they were making Sergeant Pepper's? I went to Abbey and Road. All they need is love. I went, oh, Abbey yeah, yeah. Abbey, I went to Abbey Road for Abbey Road. I went to both studios, both occasions, and the White Album. But I didn't. But didn't you were there. For, you were there at the All They Need Is Love recording, weren't you? But I, yes, I just I wanted to, 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 yeah. get to, to mention when he, you actually had to run an errand for George Martin during oh, the that's making. Oh, right. Yeah, I had to get a purpose. tissue paper because he was doing lovely Rita. And you know, that's, I, I can't do it. There's a sound where he goes, <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's all combs and paper. So George is saying to me in the, the George Martin posh voice, Tony, would you mind going around the studios and see if you can find anybody who's got some combs? So I had to go rooting around the studios looking for combs for George. And I found some and tissue paper and we had enough, I think, with only took a couple. And that was what it was. <laughs> combs and paper made that noise. <laughs> I'd love to know where you got them. What was it? Was it the receptionist had a comb or <laughs> Probably, I don't remember. I managed to round up a couple of combs. But there is a guy was referring to that to that famous um uh film that um uh, for the All You Need Is Love. I'm trying to think of the director's name for a minute. Is it uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg? Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, there's a great picture in your book of, of, of you 
uh, dressed up on your way to the filming of that. Are you actually in the film, Tony? Yeah, I am. Very briefly. I mean, you, can't, you blink and you miss it. Um, you know, it pans... What a moment, across, culturally, that was. It pans across the group of people, and I'm one of the group of people. I have a hat on. That's the only way I recognise myself. Dear Michael <laughs> Lindsay Hogg, I'm still in touch with him on Facebook. Oh. He sent me a lovely message the, the other day about Heartbreak Hotel, and it had exactly the same effect on him. Do you know what, well, what I was thinking? Because, because also, uh, of course, your old boss and uh, who we had on here, Andrew Luke Oldham, he had a fantastic. Because obviously, Heartbreak Hotel was his thing as well. And what was lovely, he said, was being so young. What was incredible about that was having heard this. Never had a heartbreak. Never stayed in a hotel. <laughs> and yet, still, no, and also, <laughs> when I when I got the lyrics finally, and it says the bellops tears keep flowing, the desk clerk's dressed in black. I thought, what the fucking hell is that? Excuse me. <laughs> What's a desk clock? What's a bellhop? <laughs> I was yeah. reading the lyrics and they didn't make sense to me because I didn't understand what he was singing about. <laughs> if he'd said the receptionist, it wouldn't have quite been so sexy, really, though, would it? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like at Apple, working at Apple, Tony? What was that? Was it mad? Well, I, I, I keep reading that I said it was mad, but I, it, it was partially mad. It wasn't always mad, but... Well, no, you made out in your book that it had been too mad for you to consider working out, but then well, it, it was, seemed it was, like it had got less mad. Yeah, but when it, they first started and I was offered a job, um, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go because it was all their friends had jobs: Terry Doran and Malibu, Magic Alex, pa Magic Alex with the yeah. musical wallpaper and yeah. all the, the nonsense. Thought, That's who you need for the sp your speakers guy in your new house. Oh, you need Magic, Magic Alex coming along yeah. with his wallpaper. He said that it was going to have wallpaper that had speakers in or some, something, uh, some ludicrous scheme. And then there was Simon and Marika hand-painting everything. All those, those clothes that were rather tacky and badly made. And weren't there Hell's Angels turning up and stuff? Were you there? I, when I never went over there much. George George Martin's office was right opposite the Apple Building, funnily enough, and so I used to look at it. But I I never used to go there. I went in once to look at the clothes, and I thought they were very tacky and very badly but stitched. Who did you did you sign anyone for Apple? Huh? Did you sign anyone for Apple? Because you were sort of working as A and R, were you? Yeah. Um, Lawrence Eric Van Eaton who made a record called Sweet Music that George Mar George Harrison produced. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. and they they had an album called Brother, produced by Klaus Vormann. Ah. And, uh, and also George Harrison co-produced. Wow, I should know this. That's fantastic. I did know. I did sign them, and I was working with... But I didn't sign Badfinger, but I used to work with Badfinger oh, right. quite a lot as well. And... Um, but Lon and Derek were the... Oh, and and then I, I signed up a Cajun record and I played it to Ring and George. They loved it. I put it out. And you look it up on... Look it up on... Oh, will on, do. How did you find it? How did you find a Cajun record? Someone a, sent it to me. Okay. One of the bands sent it to me and he was 17 years old. And the oldest person in the band was about 75 or 80 because Cajun music was generational. They all played, you know... So if you had a Cajun band, you could have a very old person playing and a very young person playing. It was just family stuff. And he sent me this record, and I loved it so much. I played it to George, and I said, you must hear this record. And George said, oh, my God, we have to put it out. 
and he played it to Ringo and Ringo loved it and we put it out and I had it pressed on 78 just to, as a joke yeah. not as a joke as a promotional effort I had it yeah. all pressed up on 78 look up Sundown Playboys Saturday Night Special and you'll find it with the Apple label and everything and I did a whole I researched Cajun music and I, I, I John Peel loved the record John Peel played it a lot and it was a turntable hit but it wasn't a hit what I love about your story, though, Tony, is you you don't you don't think, oh, I better stay here and because I'm I've got my you know I'm getting my regular wage. This is my company now. You you end up following your nose into various other exciting avenues. So next comes John wanting to wanting to. Well, work before then, and you moved down to this neck of the woods because I'm outside Lewis here. Yeah, Lewis. Right down Where here. are you? I'm at Alfriston. Yeah. yeah, I know all Friston very well because I grew up around there. I grew up in Eastbourne. That's right. Yes, yes and so right. I used to go to all Friston and and uh, what what's the what's the zoo around that player? Oh, Drusillas, Drusillas. Drusillas yeah. That's like, that's just up the road here. Yeah, my mum and dad used to take me to Drusillas. Oh. <laughs> Drusillas. Honestly, it sounds like a gay nightclub. Right? <laughs> Are you sure, it isn't. That's a bit Drusillas. Oh, I was just into Drusillas, darling. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also one thing that's lovely, by the way, because in all this period, because you're what's really great about how what happens with your relationship with Elton is that you've known him all along from before yes, yes. before it started. That's which is so lovely. Who you know, Reg Elton Elton? Yeah, you know because where was he hanging out? Where did you first meet him? In Dick James Music at the reception area. He was just hanging around the... Drusillas. <laughs> I went to pick up some American records that... I used to get sent American records for the Air London artists to see if we could cover anything. I think we did cover Homeward Bound by Simon and Garfunkel. I, I think there was Roger Cook and Roger Greenaway went under the names of David and Jonathan. And we used to do cover records. And so I used to get American records sent me and... El Reggie's eyes feasted on these records and he said what you got there and I said oh I get sent American records and we started talking and I realized he was a big music fan and we started having this conversation and he used to come in quite a lot and we used to talk a lot and I really used to like him and then he did a demo for me Jerry Lorden came in to who wrote Apache came in to do a demo and Elton played the piano I said because I knew by this time he was a good piano player I said could you play it on a demo for me and he said yeah we did the demo and Jerry Lorden couldn't reach the notes and Elton said to me Reg said to me at the time do you want me to sing it I said can you sing and he said yeah I can sing so anyway he sang it and when I took the demo in the next day to Ron Richards and John Burgess at air they said it's got a good voice who is that I said oh, it's Reg he's got a... they said he's got a good voice hasn't he I said yeah and then, of course, he went on to become Elton with his good voice. I know when you mentioned uh, uh, Paul Simon there, and there's a bit in the book that made me laugh out loud when I think you're at the Grammys and there's Paul oh, yeah. Simon there. And then and obviously he, he was estranged from, from Art Garfunkel. And then Art Garfunkel gets up to, to pick up an award. And as he walks by, he goes, I thought I told you to wait in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and John gave the Record of the Year award with Paul Simon. Yeah, Graceland. And you had to go and find him in the loo, right? I'm afraid I did. <laughs> what happened, Tony? Can't tell us. 
well, come on, you're musicians. You know what goes on in Luz, and you're not gay, so. <laughs> <laughs> but who anyway, was in there with him? So anyway, uh, what happened was that John went missing from the table, and you know, was, John Lennon, right? John Lennon went missing from the table, and Yoko said to me, "Can you find John?" So I knew straight away where to go. So I went to the loo, and him and David Bowie were having a few lines, I think. So I said to John, red alert. And he said, mother, that was, he used to call Yoko mother. And I said, oh yeah. So he said, I better go back to the table. And he went back to the table and that was it. Elton has been incredible in your life. Mm. I mean, he's the, he's in the way in this book, he's the through line. He, he begins and ends this because later on after, oh, I mean, listen, this, we're already an hour in and, and we, and we have to, we can't eat up all your time. You've been doing so much promotion, Tony. But you, you know, you go on to work with the Stones for twenty years, and Mick Jagger as a solo artist, and then you come back to Elton, don't you? Uh -huh. And he really Vegas. takes you under his wing again. For Las Vegas. Yeah, and that's the probably one of the most incredible jobs you've you've, you've had in in your life, isn't it? Vegas, definitely. I'd never. I I took on a job that could have been too big for me, but I just took a deep breath and went for it, you know? Because Elton said, you, would you like to be my creative director? And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, I need to, a Las Vegas show put together. And this was in April, May. And I said, when is it coming out? And he said, September. I said, not an awful lot of time then. <laughs> so I had to work with Mark Fisher and um, Patrick, Patrick Woodruff. Patrick Woodruff. Yeah. And Mark did the stage. And then I work with a guy called Sam Pattinson at Treatment Limited, and Treatment Limited are still big business. They've just done Adele in Las Vegas, and they did. I work with Sam Pattinson. Pat Sam Pattinson did the, all the videos for the Spandau reunion tour. Sam, really Sam's nice lovely. Guy. He's one of my yeah. best friends, uh, and uh, we became friends out, out of doing Las Vegas together. So I start working, and I found it surprisingly easy because Sam knew all the technical stuff and I knew all the emotional stuff. So I knew what emotions certain songs would bring out of Elton, like when we did Blue Eyes and we were, we did images of Elizabeth Taylor, I knew the Elizabeth Taylor that I wanted. I want the Elizabeth Taylor from suddenly last summer. Mm. That is Elizabeth Taylor at her peak. You know you're Elizabeth Taylor. You've got to know when you won't use Elizabeth Taylor. You don't have something that's slightly over the edge where she's not quite as great. But in suddenly last summer when she had the, the wet the swimming suit that got wet and she looked fantastic, gorgeous. And when we did um, Mona Lisa's and Manhattan's, we did all these wonderful um, images of still images like Richard Avedon's style because I knew Elton was a photo collector and I knew that he would love to see a piece up there that was looked like Richard Avedon pictures which turned and the girl who did it made a wonderful documentary called Paris is Burning which was all about drag queens it's a fantastic movie oh I'd like to see it it's a fantastic a New York set in New York about all the dances, the balls I used to have and everything. It's an amazing film. Anyway, she was great. And then um, it was just so easy. But, but the one song that I was very fussy about was Don't Let the Sun, because we were doing sort of expanding 
shafts of light going out up and up and up and Elton said to me are you completely happy with the show and I said no not completely and he said why I said I don't like don't let the sun and it's really important part of your it's the song that kicks off the end and it's not quite right and he said what you're going to do I said I'm going to fix it so I went to Sam and I said don't let the sun's not quite right Sam we have to we have to fix it and the next day I came in and I They'd fixed it. They'd done a beautiful thing. Because there's a key change in Don't Let the Sun. When it goes in the mm. end, he goes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes up into the last part. And that is the big part of the song when he did Don't Let the Sun, you know, and he goes off. And so I wanted to make sure that we the visuals matched the key change, and they did, and it was beautiful, and it came out great. And he always uses that song as a dedication to whoever happens to be visiting that night. And quite often I, I would get a dedication. The funny thing about that song is he brought the demo, the demo of it to me at Apple one day and he played it to me and he said, I've got my new single, do you want to hear it? And I said, yeah. And I, I thought it was fantastic. I said, it's amazing. And he said, do you really like it? I said, yeah. He said, I don't like it. I chucked it across the studio and said, give it to Engelbert. I said, don't be dull. <laughs> I said, it's a, <laughs> it's a brilliant song. He said, you think so? So I said, yeah. I said, Ringo's in upstairs. This was at Apple and Ringo had offices, a design company upstairs. And I knew he was in that day. I said, do you want to go up and see Ringo and play it to him? He goes, yeah. So we go up to Ringo's office and we play him, Don't Let the Sun Go Down On Me. And Ringo looked at Elton and he, I said, he doesn't think he's got a hit record here. And Ringo said, are you joking? It's like an enormous <laughs> hit, Elton. You... Got to, you've got to put this out. So that was it. It, be, uh, it was certified by myself and Ringo. It came out and became a huge record. Guy, I'm sorry, because I, I don't know how much time we've got, Tony, but I did want to just, just, just also mention in the book, because I found one of the most incredible parts of your book was... You working for RCA doing disco? Uh, oh, the whole the disco, disco department. thing is fantastic. Was it's it, a fantastic. That, yeah, because of just how yeah, underground that. No, no, I was just saying how what's so lovely is that you get brought into disco, but by that point it's got mainstream. But I love the way that you were. Uh, you you clearly know your stuff on disco right from day one. Yeah, but but so. how that kind of ends up going yeah. into what? Well, I knew the terrible. guy. I knew the guy at Colony Records, Ronnie who was the the best salesman in New York who knew all the disco records. And I used to buy all my records from Ronnie. Uh, and uh, But I knew I got a lot of early disco right from 72 onwards. Put it put it where you want it by the Crusaders. Eddie Kendricks. Yeah, oh, God, you need a change of mind. God, I went yeah. to Paradise Garage one night and Larry Levan, who was the DJ, slammed off all the lights, turned off the sound. So we were all standing there in the dark, and then he brought in the breakdown for Girl, You Need a Change of Mind. The place wow. went berserk. Wow. I mean, DJs were artists. They started yeah, yeah. being artists. They knew how to program. They knew what what the drug was that everybody was taking, and they knew when to pick the music to go with the drugs. And uh, Frankie Crocker as, as well, obviously. Frankie Crocker was quite... Was WBLS was the radio WB, Yeah, yeah. Frankie Crocker... I used to want to go out in the evening. I used to smoke a joint and I think, oh, I go out now. And I could never leave the house because Frankie Crocker kept playing great records. And I was thinking, please, Frankie, play something that's average so I can leave the house. When we went to um, when we went to America with Spandau Ballet in 83 and 
True had been a big hit and Frankie had been playing True. It was why True had become such a big hit because it was getting played on black radio. He actually introduced us on onto the stage that night when we when we played New York. And uh, I'm so honoured that he was there. It was it was a, it was an incredible well, thing to have. True was such a great record. I mean, come on, you know what a song and and that was a sort of that crossed over everywhere, didn't it? Yes, but I thank you, Tony. To, thank to, you. To, to this day, I've still never gone a whole day in America without hearing it somewhere in, in a lift or something. <laughs> oh, I hate him. I hate him, Tony. I know. <laughs> Tony, Tony, th- th- what what the disco scene leads into in your book is is terrifying, and the way you write about the AIDS crisis and the, the awfulness of your best friends dying all around you is, I think, one of the best depictions I've ever read yeah. of that period. The best chapter of the book, too. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and mm. it ends up it, it ends up really with you lying on a bed with Freddie Mercury, holding his mm. hand as he as he fades away. Yes, yes. And I knew someone said to me the other day, were you shocked when you saw Freddie? And I said, no, because I'd seen it already. Yeah. You know, I knew what it was. I'd seen it. I'd been through it in New York. In 1981, I had just got sober because I'm a sober man, 42 years nearly now. And so I'd just gotten sober. And then there was this notice in the doctor's office that said there was this pernicious pneumonia going around and don't take poppers, amyl nitrate, because we think that's what's causing it. Wrong. A couple of months later, people started getting ill with different illnesses and people started dying. And it was just horrible, you know. And I was getting sober, and quite a few people who were getting sober had the virus and got AIDS. And we used to have AA meetings around their bed while they were losing their lives. We used to sit around the bed and share, and they wanted to die sober. They didn't want to drink. They didn't give it. They and they and it was so noble of them. Mm. And but there was so much, so much. Tr- tragedy going on. I mean, all my neighbours, Bernard, Ellis, Tony, Norman, English gang I used to go out with. God, we used to have fun. Every one of them went, all of them. Fire Island, Michael, Kirk, Bill, Ed, gone. All of them, gone. My dear friend Michael in California, I went to see him. I always tell this story now because it's the most moving part of the story. I went to see Michael and Michael was my hero. I loved Michael. He he and I had become bosom friends. We really loved each other. And he was a very different person and he made me think differently. He had a big influence on me. And I went to see him and he was just crying in his kitchen. He had a brain disorder. virus had caused some problem to his brain because it caused all different things to different people. You either died of carposis or you had went blind or your skin started peeling off or you had pneumonia. Anyway, Michael stood in his kitchen and he couldn't move one object from one surface to another and he was getting confused. And he turned around to me with his tears in his eyes and he said, I don't want to die, Tony. I don't want to die. And I said to him, I, what could I say? He, he, I knew he was dying. I couldn't say, don't worry, you won't die, because I knew he wasn't. He would. And I didn't say anything. I just stood there 
silently with him. And within three weeks, he'd gone when I went back to... And luckily, I, I was in LA on business at the time, and his sister and I still speak to each other on Facebook. And she's already posted stuff about my book saying how flattered she is that I've mentioned her brother in my book. And I sent her a PDF of the book so she got to read it ahead of time so she could read about Michael. Because she still, and it was his birthday last week, and we both wished him happy birthday on Facebook together. But it was a very, very, very mm. tragic time. But out of the tragedy come, came one enormous bit of nobility. It was a guy in San Francisco. There were two areas where the AIDS virus hit the most, which I would call two ground zeros, which is Greenwich Village and the Castro in San Francisco. In the, in the Castro, there was this wonderful guy called Cleve Jones who worked with Harvey Milk, the mayor of San Francisco, who got shot. Yeah. And Cleve Jones had an idea that to commemorate, he didn't like the idea, he found out that a thousand people had died already, and he didn't like the idea of people going away without being remembered because there was a lot of prejudice against gay people at that time, a lot. Certain people wouldn't do funerals. Nurses wouldn't necessarily touch you in hospital. My friend James in hospital had lank hair. They wouldn't cut his hair. They wouldn't cut his nails. So a lot of prejudice. So Cleve had this idea to do this quilt. And it was like a square, like about two, two foot by two foot square. And you had to embroider stuff on it that reminded you of the person. Well, you, of course, you know, gay people don't waste time on creativity. And the squares were beautiful. And they were assembled into a giant quilt, and there was 1,950 of them commemorating someone who died. And they were laid out on that stretch of grass leading up to the White House that you often see, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And mm -hmm. it took the entire space of that stretch of grass. And I went on the march. They had a, gay, a march to support gay and gay rights. In 1987, I went with three of my friends, two of whom died. And um, we went on the march and then we went to see the quilt and you could walk in between the patches of the quilt and look at them. It was so overwhelmingly moving, no one spoke. All you could hear was people crying when they would come across their friends who had died. It was so moving. And now I read up last night because I thought I'd better be well genned up this on this now. There's 125,000 patches they've got. Wow. I guess it's all rolled up and stored somewhere, and they occasionally stored. bring it out and lay it on a football pitch or something like that. Something huge, because 125,000 is a lot. <laughs> and that's just the people who bothered to make a quilt. But there are a lot of people, other people who just yeah. died, and they died, you know. Anyway, it was a, a very, very, very heavy sad moment and a lot of people who didn't get the virus had what they called survivor's guilt because mm. they got you know all their friends were going and they they survived you know i would feel that if, way so if i just add to that a personal thing i've got i was working with madonna in la in 1989 and i went out with her one night and i just said to her how do you find living in la because you strike me as such a new york person she said, I hate it, but I can't live in New York because all my friends are dead. Yeah. I met her at a party was... with Jellybean Benitez when she just, when she was... she just had a holiday. 
Mm. My friend Judy Weinstein, who runs the New York record pool, had a party and Madonna showed up with with uh, Jelly Bean and that was her first DJ boyfriend and she spilled some drink on the floor and she was on her hands and knees mopping up the drink like a, like a housewife. <laughs> <laughs> Good Italian mama. Huh? Like an Italian, Italian mother, mother, yeah. And I yeah, said yeah, to yeah. Jelly Bean the next day, I said, your girlfriend's interesting. I said, is she completely together? He said, more than completely together. Oh, no, was it ambitious? Didn't you ask her if she was, ask him if she was ambitious? He said, yeah, she the, gets the... up every morning at five o'clock and goes swimming. And I, then I knew, I thought, oh, watch out for this girl because she's got careers <laughs> seriously in her sights. Tony, thank you so much for coming on, on the show. You, this book I, is, is a walk through some of the greatest moments in rock and roll history. You get to hold Tony's hand. You see some tragedy as well on the way, but I, I can't recommend this book Absolutely. highly this enough. Is, this is a rock on tours library suggestion. Uh, the yeah. first highest and highest rated. Tony, I, I'd love to come and have tea with you. Okay. Well, you, I'll, you've I'll, got my email. I'll text you. Okay, darling. And, uh, uh, good luck Am with I'm allowed to say darling on your show? <laughs> you de- you, uh, it's please, an honour to be called darling by you. <laughs> okay, guys, this was really lovely. Thank you. I hope I hope I didn't go off piece too much and you... you no, it was fabulous. It was lovely. Yeah, it was, this is, okay, this is really right. nice. Bye now. Stunning. Good, Thank you good so luck much. with the book. Bye Lots bye. of love. Uh, bye, Tony. Thanks. I'm glad you like it. Oh, well. Wow. That, that was... That, that, I'm just so heady, isn't it? All those Yeah. And then... So, God, so moving at the end. Yeah, um, yeah. We should reiterate that, yes, that book is an absolute must-read. Yeah. And there's... Uh, you know, there's, it's interesting now, isn't there? Because there's a few people... As you go through the book now, there's a few people that have done rock on tours along the way. You yeah, know? do you I know mean, what's really annoying? Do you know why I was feeling really left out, Gary? Is that I could only re listen, I only had time because I've been running around so much. I, I listened to the audio book, so I haven't seen the pictures. You haven't seen the pictures? I haven't seen the pictures. Oh, the pictures are fabulous. He's one they're... of the most brilliantly dressed men I've ever seen. The white suit that he wears on the back of the, on the back cover, you will covet. <laughs> it, is very, it is very 70s but it's right up our street <laughs> anyway thank you we will be back next week thank you to Ben Jones our producer and all of you great listeners always please we read all the social media remarks that you leave so keep doing that yeah so remember we can wound <laughs> we can what? wound oh we can wound <laughs> oh yes <laughs> nothing mean probably <laughs> yeah, exactly uh, uh, anyway, till next week, it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 